Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 10? John 10. Now, if you're new with us, we uh, welcome you, and we're currently working our way through the Gospel of John here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. However, we uh, put uh, that on hold to do a series, which we're finishing today, which we've entitled The Gospel, The Key to Salvation. The last time we were actually uh, in this series, I checked my notes, was seven weeks ago. We had a special guest speaker, then a two-part Christmas message, then a four-part New Year's series. So I'm going to just start over again. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But bear with me as I review briefly what we've covered so far, so as to refresh your memories and help the new folks uh, get up to speed. As I, said when we, as I said, the way we started this series, the way it came about was um, we were studying John chapter 10, and uh, where Jesus was likening himself to a shepherd who leads his sheep in search of pasture. Now in Israel, in the winter months, uh, fall and winter, they would um, take their flocks out uh, around the uh, village, uh, because it was uh, kind of the rainy season, there was plenty of uh, grass for the sheep to eat, so they stayed close to home. At night, they would bring the sheep into one communal sheepfold. We talked about this. I'm not going to go into it in detail again. But as the spring came on and then the summer began to approach, the weather got hotter and hotter, and the shepherd would have to lead his flock farther and farther away from his village to find something for the sheep the, to graze on. Now, this eventually took his flock so far away from the village that at one point uh, the shepherd was too far away from the village to go back and put his sheep in the communal fold in the evening, which meant he would have to now stay out in the field wherever they were with the sheep, and he would have to build a makeshift sheepfold out of a, a tumbleweed or maybe rocks. If he could find a cave, that was ideal, okay? And he would then bring the sheep into this enclosure, and uh, there was only one way in. If he built it, a cave was ideal because it only had one entrance. But if he built this thing out of tumbleweeds and things, uh, obviously there's no physical door. There was no wooden door to close. It was just he left an opening. And, uh, and the rest of it was enclosed. And um, the shepherd, after he would lead his sheep into this sheepfold, would actually lay across the opening, literally becoming the door of the sheepfold which meant to get to the sheep, predators would have to walk over him. To get out, the sheep would have to also walk over the shepherd. It was his way of protecting them, watching over them even as he slept. Now, Jesus used that practice, that picture. They all knew it as being analogous to himself as the good shepherd, who is the only way into the sheepfold of heaven. He made that very clear in verse 9 that that's what he was going for. That was the analogy he was presenting. He didn't leave us to guess. Here it is, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And it was upon that statement, guys, that we launched this series, that Jesus and only Jesus is the door that a person must go through to be saved and to enter then into heaven. He said in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so again, there's only one entrance into salvation. Now, of course, as evangelicals, we believe that. That's just, that's just basic knowledge. You're talking to 
people of the world, they think there are many roads that lead to God, many ways into the kingdom of heaven, if they believe in heaven, obviously. But Jesus says very definitively here, and in other places, that there's only one entrance into salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. He alone is the door. And as we have said, and I'm reviewing now from prior studies, as we have said, any door that leads to something of great value is going to be locked. Is going to be locked. And likewise, the door leading to salvation, which is of infinite value, it is locked also and requires a key to open it. And what is the key that unlocks the door of salvation? Allows a person to enter Christ and eventually heaven? Well, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. And so the gospel is the salvation, what a key is to a lock. That's where we've gone with this, all right? And as I said in prior studies, we all know, though, that a key won't unlock a door if it's somehow gotten bent or twisted. Pretty obvious. The key must be straight and true if it's going to be used to open a door, and the same is true with the gospel. If Satan can twist and pervert the gospel, and guys, he has been doing that from the very beginning. Check out Galatians 1, verses 6 and 7. Paul talked about those who were perverting the gospel. The church had just gotten started a few years earlier. Um, but if Satan can twist and pervert the gospel, he can keep the door of salvation locked to seekers. Even though people believe in a false God, they think it's the true gospel. But even though they embrace and believe in a false gospel with all their heart, this idea that it doesn't matter what you believe, only that you believe something, obviously that's not biblical. But there's a lot of folks that have been deceived by the devil. They have embraced a false, a twisted, a perverted gospel, and they believe with all their hearts. I'm thinking of Jehovah's Witnesses, of Mormons and others. And even though they have great faith and will even lay down their lives at times for their faith, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why the devil has been working very hard for the last 2,000 years trying to pervert and twist the gospel in an effort to keep the door of salvation locked to seekers. And guys, this is where we as the people of God now come in. All right. This is where this connects with us now. All right. The Lord has commissioned us, his church, to go into all the world to preach the gospel to the lost, which is why we must listen, know the true gospel, and be able to share it accurately with those we come in contact with. Now, as we have said in prior studies, as we study the New Testament and we see the various gospel presentations in Acts primarily, but other places, um, they all share the same core elements. The same, no, not every, we don't present the gospel in a canned way. I've had members of the cults come to my house, you know, knock at the door, I invite them in, okay? I invite them in, we talk, okay? I'm amazed at how mechanical the presentation is. And when you hit them with a few things, they stop for a second, like a deer in the headlight, and they get right back into the canned presentation. That's not us. We need to know the core elements of the gospel and let the Holy Spirit lead you in how to present it. All right? But uh, as we study these gospel presentations in the New Testament, they all share the same core elements. Uh, the first one, which we've already stated, isn't really part of the gospel itself. You say, what do you mean? Well, it's not uh, a doctrine required for salvation. Well, what are you talking about? Well, as we share the gospel, it's good to start, I think, 
you know, as the spirit leads. Um, it's good to start with presenting the, uh, the reality that there is a day of judgment coming. Now, again, guys, this is more the introduction, the motivation to get people moving in the direction of salvation. They don't have to believe a day of judgment is coming to be saved. That's why I say it's not an essential doctrine to go to heaven. But it does cause them to perk up, all right? It, it does get their attention. And that's really what we want to do, right? We want to get their attention, that there is a day of judgment coming. Without any talk of judgment, and, and maybe you don't lead with that. Maybe the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, leads you to start a little differently. But somewhere along the line, that should be involved in there. Because if you don't, without any talk of coming judgment, the gospel is reduced, listen, from an emergency warning siren, like uh, the tornadoes, right? How that, you know, you're asleep 3 o'clock in the morning and the tornado siren goes off in your town. It scares the bejesus out of you, you know? And if you've got some shelter, you, that siren is telling you, you better take cover. Something bad is coming. And really, if you study the New Testament, that's exactly how the apostles presented the gospel. Nowhere in the book of Acts do you see them present the gospel based on God's love. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying they didn't do it. What they did was they presented the gospel as this way, Flee the wrath that is coming. Judgment's coming. Something bad's on its way. You don't want to be here for that. So you need to run to Christ for refuge. Take refuge in him. He's the strong tower the righteous run into and are safe. When we're in Christ, it causes the judgment of God to pass over us. That's what Passover was really all about. It symbolized how that when we're in Christ, the blood of the Lamb is applied to our lives, that the judgment of God passes over us. If you don't talk about coming judgment at all, what are you going to talk about? Well, a lot of Christians will talk about how much God loves people, how he wants them to have a wonderful life, how we want, you know. And, and it, so what they're doing is they're reducing the gospel from an emergency warning system the happy talk. Happy talk. You know? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Come to Jesus and everything's going to be great. You know? And this is how a lot of Christians present the gospel today. I'm not, not saying... Listen, I'm not saying that none of that is okay. But if that's the, the full scope of what you're, what you're doing, what you're presenting, it's, there's a problem there. A lot of Christians are presenting the gospel, like I just said, as, like, as happy talk. They're not warning or urging people to receive Jesus as a Savior who will save them from the fires of hell, but as a kind of a sanctified butler, you know, uh, whose job it is to make their lives more comfortable here on the earth. That is so wrong. That is so, that's end times, Satan-twisted gospel presentations. Well, after you kind of get their attention, you know, Judgment's coming. Uh, you can mix love in there. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him should not perish in hell. There it is. Have everlasting life. Okay? All right. But when you get their attention, um, the next thing you need to tell them is, look, uh, to be saved, we have to repent. Now, I'm giving you the core elements. How you mix them into your gospel presentation, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. 
But repentance, I think, should be at the top of the list. This is essential for salvation, I'm convinced. Others would disagree with me. The word, Greek word for repentance is metanoia, which literally means to have a change of mind, but a change of mind that ultimately leads to a change of direction, a change of action. Listen, no one can be saved who isn't willing, who isn't willing and wanting. Now, God, the power comes from God to change. I'm not saying it's up to us. But the will, we have to want it. Any person who is really ready to receive Christ is going to want to have their life changed. Nobody who is serious about really, is really serious about receiving Christ is thinking, yeah, I'll take Jesus. Keep me from going to hell, but I'm going to still do whatever I want. And that's okay with him. No, that's a false gospel. Okay. So no one can be saved who isn't willing and wanting to have the course of their life changed from, rebe from rebellion against God to obedience toward God. Jesus said, and he repeated it twice in three verses, he said in Luke 13, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Oh, that was Jesus, people say. But see, Paul, he was the one. See, Jesus was part of the old covenant. But Paul, he's the guy that got the gospel of grace for the new covenant. Well, you love Paul so much? I do. Check out Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Paul said Jesus commissioned him to go into all the world and preach repentance and then faith in him. Well, another element, core element of the gospel presentation is, of course, some of these are very basic, okay? that Jesus Christ is Almighty God, Lord of all. Now, guys, this is an absolutely essential, critically important element of the gospel presentation, as we've already mentioned, that we present Jesus Christ, the people we're witnessing to, as Almighty God in human form. You say, wasn't well, that obvious? Not to everybody. Not today. Not today. It's obvious to us, but there's a lot of folks that have all these different concepts of Jesus. Jesus Christ is almighty, not just a mighty God, one of different gods that will get you into heaven. Jesus Christ is almighty God in human form, the great I am. Now, he said himself, this was an essential doctrine for salvation. We've quoted John 8, 24 numerous times in the course of this series where Jesus said, therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. Let me leave out the he that's in italics. He's what he's really saying is you'll die in your sins. You'll go to hell if you don't believe that I am. That's the name of God, the great I am. You will die in your sins. It's important for the people we are witnessing to that they understand that to be saved, they have to believe, yes, in Jesus Christ as Almighty God. That's vital. They have to believe. But what we must also make sure they understand is that not all faith is saving faith. Not all faith is saving faith. As you, most of you know, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Listen to me now. I believed everything about Jesus back then that I believe about Jesus right now. You know that? Yet back then I wasn't saved. Why wasn't I saved? I believe everything about Jesus, I believed everything about Jesus back then that I believe about him right now. 
So why wasn't I saved if simply believing the facts about Jesus Christ was all that was necessary to be saved and to get into heaven as some people believe and teach? I had a lady leave the church a few years ago. I was teaching on this very issue. And she thought I was teaching salvation by works because I was telling people, you know what? There is, uh, there is uh, head knowledge and then there's a heart commitment. Not all faith is saving faith. She got very offended by that and left the church and took her family with her. I tried to write her a long email explaining my position, but to no avail. People get dug in, and it's like, you know, any talk. Uh, you know, what I tried to explain to her is that, you know, James in his epistle, he made sure he said that not all faith is saving faith. Can that kind of faith save you? He gives examples, right? And in the course of that presentation, he said that, you know, even the devil and his demons believe in, in, and tremble, right? But they're not saved. Even, even the devil and his demons believe who Jesus Christ is, what he did. They're not saved. Why? I mean, if they believe everything we evangelicals believe about Jesus being God Almighty, the second person of the Trinity, and so on and so forth, why aren't they going to heaven like us? It's because even though they believe the facts about Christ, who He is, what He did, they refused to commit themselves to those facts. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Jesus died for fallen angels, and that if fallen angels repent, they can be saved. No, no. Uh, angels get one shot, and they made the decision a long time ago. I'm just using it as an illustration, okay? I'm just using it as an illustration. Why did Satan and his, well, at, back then they weren't fallen angels, neither was Satan. Why didn't they bow the knee to God's authority over their lives? Satan wanted to be God, right? Let a rebellion in heaven against God. They, of course they believed everything we believe about God who is and all so forth. Why didn't, why, why are they not going to heaven? Because they're rebels, they're rebels. And that, that's the point I'm making. You can believe all the right things about Jesus Christ. I did before I got saved, but I was a rebel. You say, you were a rebel? Well, yeah. Not as bad as some rebels. But a rebel is anybody who wants to live their life their way. And okay, God might be included in some way. Jesus, is for some people, is the frosting on the cake, the salt and the soup of life. He's just not the substance. I'm the substance. I'm on the throne. That's a rebel. Okay? That's a rebel. Listen, guys, saving faith is not just believing the facts about Jesus Christ. Again, who he is and what he did, died and rose again. Uh, to be saved, a person must believe. Listen now, this is important. A person must believe. Not all faith is saving faith, right? Saving faith is not just believing what Je who he, Jesus is, what he did. To be saved, a person must believe to the point of Commitment. Commitment. What, what does that mean? When you were dating your future spouse and you decided to get married, you didn't enter into marriage until you made the commitment to one another. You stood in church, probably, and you recited vows to each other. You were entering into a commitment. It wasn't until you entered, you, you, you 
professed your commitment to one another through those wedding vows, it wasn't until then that you entered into the marriage covenant. And now in the eyes of God, you were one with each other. And the same was true with your relationship with Jesus. If you had one, I did as a Roman Catholic. The same was true with your relationship with Jesus before you were saved, you and I. Many of you, like me, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead three days later. And maybe you, like me, love Jesus in your own way. I didn't hate Jesus. I was not an atheist or even an agnostic. I mean, I grew up in church. I had a love for the Lord my own way. But it wasn't until, listen, we made a commitment to him. What does that mean? We received him into our heart as our Savior, our Savior. We personalized it. It wasn't until then that we entered into what the Bible calls the everlasting covenant. That's another way of saying the new covenant. That's another way of saying salvation being a part of the body of Christ. There's a lot of ways to put it. It wasn't until we made the commitment to Jesus that we entered into the covenant that we became one with him through. Guys, it was the commitment. That's what saving faith is. It's just not head knowledge. It's a commitment that you made to Jesus that allowed you to become one with him brought you into salvation, which the New Testament calls a marriage, right? Where Jesus is the bridegroom and we are now the bride. Or as the Apostle John put it in the opening verses of his gospel, chapter 1, he said, saving faith is believing in, yes, and then receiving Jesus Christ. There's the commitment. You have the believing, that's where it starts, but then believing to the point of commitment, you receive. In the course of your gospel presentation, you must, you must present Jesus as the one who died for their sins. We talked about this at great length last time we met. But when you present the gospel to people, you need to make sure that they understand from God's word now that being good, whatever that means, won't get them into heaven. Now, we live at a time, I think, more than any other time in the history of our country. I, I don't think I, that's, I, I need to, you know, guard against that. I think we are living at a time in our nation's history because of all the me-centered self-esteem being pumped into kids incessantly at schools, psychologizing them, getting them to think that they're the most important thing in the, in the whole universe. Everything revolves around them. That teaching has taken its toll on our kids and then us as we've bought into it, not us in this room perhaps, but you know what I'm saying, as a culture. Today you have more people running around fulfilling uh, something that Solomon said in Proverbs 20, verse 6, uh, that more than ever before, most men, most people will proclaim each his own goodness. Translation, pretty much everybody thinks they're a good person. And yet Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 17, he said, there's only one person who is good, morally 
perfect, and that is God. And that is why Jesus, listen, had to die on the cross for our sins because we weren't good. We were fallen sinners condemned to spend eternity in hell. And the only way we could escape that judgment, that punishment, was if God, listen, if God redeemed us. The Greek word for redeem means to buy out of slavery by paying a price. Here's what Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 19, 18 and 19. He said, knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, from your old life, received by tradition from your fathers. And I think he's got the religious traditions in, in view there also. So you weren't saved or redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver from those empty things you put your faith in to save you. Religion. Verse 19, but with the precious, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Look, under the old sacrificial system, God mandated that he would only accept the innocent dying for the guilty. And of course, back then, he allowed them to bring animal sacrifices. But he wanted to communicate that idea. And so he said to them, they had to be the animal without spot or blemish. In other words, they couldn't have any, uh, any birth defect or they couldn't have any acquired wound or, or, uh, or, or scars, okay? Now, that was important because the idea was you were giving God your best. And God was communicating that the animal had to be, you know, it had to be, it had to be uh, innocent, of course, uh, but, but perfect in a sense, okay? Perfect without spot or blemish. That was how God was communicating that. God said the blood of the animal then would atone for their sins. The word in Hebrew for atonement is a word that means a covering. A covering, okay? For the Jewish people to have fellowship with God, their sins would have to be atoned for, covered, so that they wouldn't be, in a sense, seen, that, that they would be covered so uh, the Jew and, and God could have fellowship with one another. And God made it clear, though, that they're being good, quote-unquote, again, whatever that means, keeping commandments, offering God religious rituals and ceremonies, wasn't going to do it. It would take a blood sacrifice. This is what God said in Leviticus 17, verse 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar, the animal, to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Not going to church. A lot of times, not, you know, praying the rosary, not lighting candles if you're a Catholic like I was. It would take a blood sacrifice. In the old covenant, animals. But even then, the blood of animals would only temporarily cover their sin. Until the next time they sinned, then they would have to bring another animal to be sacrificed for their sin to be covered once again to restore their fellowship with God. Of course, guys, this all look forward to the sinless, perfect Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would die in our place, read Hebrews, and his death was good enough to cover, not, I'm sorry, not cover, take away sin, right? He died once for all people, he doesn't have to be, you know, animals kept having to be sacrificed in the old covenant for their sins to be continually covered. 
Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. One sacrifice for all people for all time. When we share the gospel with people today, since everyone pretty much thinks they're a good person, I've heard them say, I'm not perfect. Well, thank you for your humility. I'm not perfect, mind you. But I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. Why do you think that? Okay, there's always somebody you can point to that's more rotten than you are. I mean, let's face it. There's a lot of them walking around in our culture, okay? And, you know, you, you pick out the raunchiest person, the biggest sinner, the, the most glaring reprobate you can find. They go, well, you know, I'm not perfect, but look at next to this guy. Ha, I'm St. Peter. I'm going to heaven. I mean, this guy, he's going to heaven. Not me. I'm good. And God is saying, stand next to my son. How do you look now? See, he's the standard. Not, you know, this guy. Jesus is the standard. Are you as good as Jesus Christ? Because he's the only, that's the only righteousness I will accept up into my kingdom. Read John 16. Well, no, Lord. I'm not perfect like Jesus. Then you're not good enough. Because to get into heaven, you have to be perfect. Just like Jesus Christ. Well, Lord, nobody's perfect. That's right. And that's where faith comes in. If you will believe in my son, commit your life to him, I will take his righteousness and write it across your ledger, paid in full. His blood will pay for your sins. We were not redeemed through gold and silver, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But we've got to communicate to this people, this to people. Yet let them know that if we could be good enough to get into heaven by doing good deeds and keeping religious ceremonies, rituals, feast days, and so on, if our good deeds and religious works could atone for our sins, listen now, got to let them know this, then Jesus would not have had to have died. Or having died, he died in vain. Galatians 2.21 if people could be righteous by keeping laws, commandments, then Jesus Christ didn't have to die. He died in vain. Of course he didn't die in vain. There was no other way for us to be saved. And guys, that goes hand in hand with the last piece of the gospel message, which of course must be in our presentation. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He died for our sins, but that's not where he stayed. Death could not hold him. Three days later, he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, as I have said numerous times, bear with me, is the single greatest event in the history of the world and the cornerstone of the Christian faith. It is so foundational to Christianity that anyone who denies the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ cannot be a genuine Christian. It is an essential doctrine for the, for the Christian faith for salvation. You see, without the resurrection, listen, there is no Christian faith, no salvation, and no hope for man. Paul the Apostle made this very clear when he said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is useless, your faith is meaningless, we are still in our sins, those who have died believing in Christ are lost, and we are of all men the most pathetic. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for there is nothing more to life than this. 
However, he went on to say, but now Christ is risen from the dead and is the first fruits from the grave of those who have died believing in Jesus. The truth of the resurrection was first proclaimed to the women who came to the tomb early Sunday morning to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial. You remember how Jesus died on the cross at 3 p.m.? I believe on Thursday, not Friday. Uh, who cares? I mean, who cares? People want to fight and, you know. I believe it was Thursday. If you want to believe it was Friday, that's fine. He died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time the four Roman executioners required by Roman law had certified he was officially dead and his body was removed from the cross, the sun, listen, was starting to set. Jewish law mandated that a dead body had to be buried at sundown. It couldn't be left unburied after the sun had gone down. It had to be buried before the sun had completely gone down. So they quickly wrapped Jesus' body in burial cloths and put it into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The women purposed that they would come back. They, they made a little pact that they would come back early Sunday morning after the Sabbath now, because next day was the Sabbath, to finish properly preparing Jesus' body for burial, which meant taking spices and winding them into the wrappings and so on. And that's the way they did it back then. It staved off the stench of death, and that was what they wanted to do. The Gospels tell us that the women left their houses early before the sun came up, making their way toward the tomb. On the way, they were concerned. They were talking among themselves, what are we going to do about the stone once we get there? That stone weighed between three and 4,000 pounds. It was rolled down a slight incline over the opening of the tomb, and they were rightly concerned, how are we going to get in the tomb? Who's going to roll the stone away for us so we can get in there and finish preparing his body for burial? Isn't it interesting that how many times do we worry about things coming down the road that we have no idea how we're going to fix this thing or what we're going to do and it finally gets to us and, and all the worry and all the anxiety and when we finally get there, God's already gone before us. He's worked it out. So by the time the women got to the tomb, God had already sent an angel, didn't roll it up the channel. The Greek is Iro. He picked it up and moved it off to the side. That's what perplexed them when they got there, the apostles too. They looked, the stone was not only away from the opening of the tomb, it wasn't rolled up the channel like it started. It was over here. Who picked it up and moved it? That got their attention. So when the women got to the tomb, the tomb was open. They looked inside, saw an angel. Actually, some accounts say there was two angels. There was probably hundreds of angels appearing and disappearing all over. The this was the greatest moment in the history of humanity, the resurrection of Christ. They peeked inside, and an angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, as he said. Come. See the place where the Lord lay, Matthew 28, verses 5 and 6. We will deal with the resurrection in greater detail when we come to John 20. But let me just say as we bring this to a close. The resurrection sets Christianity apart from every world religion on the planet, okay? Of the four let me just say this, all but four of the major world religions are based on philosophical and ethical principles. 
of the four that are based on personalities. Only Christianity claims an empty tomb due to the resurrection of its founder. Abraham, the father of Judaism, died about 1900 B.C. The Jews never claimed that Abraham rose from the dead. The original accounts of Buddha's life and death never claimed any resurrection from the dead for, for him. Muhammad died on June 8th, uh, 632 AD at the age of 61 in Medina, uh, where his tomb is there to this day visited by thousands and thousands of Muslims every year. But neither the Quran nor the Hadith ever claimed that Muhammad rose from the dead. Their bodies, Abraham, Buddha, Muhammad, are still in the grave. In other words, they're bones. Only the tomb of Jesus is empty because only Jesus is risen. Now, after you finish presenting the gospel, after you've given the gospel presentation, it's time for the invitation, okay? Ask the person you're witnessing to if they would like to receive Jesus as their savior. A lot of you guys are great salesmen. You don't close the deal. Some people say, well, I like to let them go home and think about it. You know, D.L. Moody used to like to do that also. And that's what he did after preaching the gospel to a large crowd one night. He gave them the gospel, pressed it upon them, and said, now you think about it, come back next Sunday night, and let me know if you want to receive Christ. As he was dismissing the audience, already he started hearing fire bells in the distance. I mean, the fire bells. Uh, uh, firefighters were ringing the bells. The date was October 8th, 18, 1871, the night of the great Chicago fire. As Moody made his way home, he said it was like passing through hell. There was flames everywhere. He could feel the heat, he could hear the screams. He used that as an illustration of hell for the rest of his ministry. And after that, he vowed never to let people go home without pressing them to make a decision about Christ right then and there. Look, guys, when the Bible says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That's as much for the person giving the gospel as it is for the one hearing the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. If you're given the gospel, you ask them if they want to receive Jesus Christ right then. There's an author and commentator whose name is William Barclay who related the following story to illustrate the danger of spiritual procrastination. He said, and I quote, there is a fable which tells of three apprentice demons who were coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. They were talking to Satan, the chief of the demons, about their plans to tempt and ruin men. The first said, I will tell them that, God, that there is no God. Satan said, that will not delude many, for they know that there is a God. The second said, I will tell men that there is no hell. Satan answered, you will deceive no one that way. Men know even now that there is a hell for sin. The third said, I will tell men that there is no hurry, that they have time. Go, Satan said, you will ruin men by the thousands. The most dangerous of all delusions is that there is plenty of time to get serious about God, so there's no need to hurry. You don't want to feed into that. 
You want to have an urgency when you present the gospel. You want to communicate that to people who are thinking, yeah, you know, I, I believe everything you're saying, but you know, I'm just not ready. Just not ready yet. Someday I will be. So, someday I'll get serious and accept Christ. God's word admonishes us and unbelievers. Admonishes us to tell unbelievers and admonishes them personally not to put off receiving Jesus when the gospel is presented to them. Because it says in Hebrews 3, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the day of salvation. Tomorrow was not promised anyone. And I would communicate that to them. Our life is like a vapor, James, James says, here today, gone tomorrow. And I'm convinced that hell will be populated with millions of people who were not atheists. They believed with their heads and, and, and maybe fully intended with their heart that someday they were going to get serious and accept Christ. Because they believed he was the son of God who died for their sins. But they died before they made that commitment. And hell, in part, the horror of it will be for all eternity, they will be thinking, I didn't have to be here. I didn't have to, what, why did I put it off? What was I waiting for? Weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth forever and ever because they didn't act quickly. If there's anyone here who has not accepted Christ, I think you know where I'm coming from. And when you share the gospel, please include that in your presentation. Amen. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that by that grace you opened our eyes, impressed on our hearts this was the day of salvation. This was the day that we were to get our lives right with you. And by your grace, we did. And now, Lord, press upon us the horror of anyone going to hell for eternity that would drive us to plead with them to flee the wrath to come and receive Christ. Give us that holy love and concern for people that will motivate us to, to, to share with all our hearts the gospel with people, that they would be saved. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.